From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, political commentator Joe Tuman returns to provide analysis of the Trump administration thus far. And after that, I speak with Caleb Lumpkin, an extraordinary young man who was recently honored in Washington, D.C., for his volunteer efforts here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. As a political columnist, I find writing about the Trump administration by far the most challenging of any president that I've covered. The president's uncanny ability to change the narrative in the public discourse could render today's breaking news obsolete by the end of the day. To help us make sense of the fledgling stages of the Trump administration, we welcome back political analyst Joe Tooman. Joe Tooman, welcome back to The Public Morality. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're, we're always honored to have you back and, all, and your sage wisdom, which I think we're going to put to the test uh, today. Um, well, wait, wait. Before you ask me any questions, in the last 10 minutes, there haven't been any new Trump eruptions in the news media, have there? Not that I know of, but I, I, do, have this, I do have this monitor <laughs> that says breaking news, so you know, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> now, is that the CNN version of breaking news, which is repeating the same news story all day, or is it a real breaking news? <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 I, well, I'm going uh, to give the CNN answer. It's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, in that spirit, I'm just going to begin with a – we're going to start with a softball question. How's that? Sounds good. All right. Given where we are, where the nation is currently, politically speaking, where are we? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. Um, If we're talking about this, to answer your question, from the perspective of citizens, residents, and more importantly, voters and really likely voters, um, we are, I think, where we are is still in a state of being polarized. Um, I think that uh, as probably read before, but there are certainly enough polls, I think, at this point that demonstrate the, the veracity of what I'm about to say. Amongst Mr. Trump's hardcore supporters, um, who have already bought in as a precept to everything else, um, his notion that the news media distorts, lies, uh, in his words, are the enemy of the, or not the friends of the American people, um, those, those people have found it much easier to sort of tune out uh, the myriad number of investigations, uh, the, the kind of complicated narratives about uh, inappropriate things that he said to the Russians about national security or the question of whether his intention in firing James Comey was really to obstruct uh, a congressional investigation or to kill a, an FBI investigation. So, Joe, let me just uh, cut you off real quick because I, I was curious. Do you have any idea about where is his floor, what percentage of that? of his hardcore is uh, uh, 
does he have? What percentage does the hardcore make up of his? Well, I, I, I can only answer it this way. I've, I've seen some polls in the last two weeks, and it looks like the, the hardcore base is somewhere between 30 and 35 percent. I've seen um, people who do what I do for a living do the analysis who've offered their opinion without research saying they think it's probably closer to the high 20s. But I'll stick with the numbers. Okay. The people who still give him a positive job approval rating, and that I think reflects their okay. awareness of or their resistance to listening to stories about his problems. Okay, well, so, I'm sorry, continue with your, with your analysis. Yeah, so I was, I was going to say, I think that, that amongst his base, uh, that, that, that part is the same. Um, amongst, though, and here when I say his base, I'm, you know, we were talking early on in this election, I mean, one of the things he did and Bernie Sanders did as well was identify a sizable number of people in the population who felt disconnected from and uh, a disillusioned by uh, the political parties and the political process. What Trump did that he deserves credit for, and the same thing to Senator Sanders, was identifying that block of voters and bringing them into the election cycle. And uh, and so, in a sense, they, if we're looking at this from the Republican perspective of those voters who voted for a Republican candidate but aren't really Republicans, um, those are people who still don't test the process. They like Trump. They're not happy with the party. And I think that that a sizable number of those people will stay with it. Now, Trump also got some real Republican voters. When I say real, I mean voted that way many times, have articulated positions on tax reform or whatever. And that group of voters is staying with him so long as uh, their support for the Republican control of Congress, because they they identify that as, as uh, something that might get them legislation passed that they want, and they don't really care who's in the White House for that as long as they get the legislation they want. Mm-hmm. But you've even seen, now to your question about where are we, in this last week, if we're identifying Republican leadership in the Congress, people start to inch away from the president. Um, uh, Marco Rubio, John McCain obviously was doing this before, but several also people in, in the House as well who are expressing concern. And as they start to do that publicly, they kind of inch away from the president, and that's where you're seeing some of a little bit of a breakup in the, the solid Republican support for him. Then, on the other half of this, you've got more than half the population, if you believe those numbers, and I do, about the popular vote um, that supported Mrs. Clinton. Even if they're mad at her for not being a great candidate, you know, they def- definitely wanted her more than Trump, who definitely see this issue uh, the other way, and who not only believe there was collusion, but you know, were happy to hear calls for impeachment. And I don't think that much is done to change any of their opinions. If anything, every new story that comes out um, just reinforces uh, or reifies their worldview. And so where we are, to answer your question, I'm sorry this is a long answer, but I hope you got the nuances, is we're still a country that's polarized. Um, I think the, the, the majority of people, well more than half, possibly more than 60 percent, do not think that the president is doing a great job. Um, he may get some recovery out of this trip that he's taking now that gives him some positive press, especially if he manages to avoid having press conferences and doesn't get faced with these questions. Um, and you know, that'll probably help him a little bit. But when he comes back, it's going to be the same thing. And, and the basic questions um, about him have not abated. And I think we'll continue to be a polarized country at that point. Well, I, I was going to ask this question later, but but since you brought it up now, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to jump to it if you, if you don't mind. But sure. Usually, when, when when you know we've seen this historically, at least in the 20th century, uh, when presidents are in trouble, perceived to be in trouble, uh, and domestically, 
they tend to take trips abroad. I mean, Nixon did it right after Watergate. Clinton did it when he was yeah. having the Monica Lewinsky uh, problems. Uh, how does this? Uh, how do you think this will uh, fare? This 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 uh, overseas trip, assuming there's there's no breaking news as you as you as you let in with, but assuming no breaking news, how do you think this will fare when the president returns back home? So you mean fair with people here? Yes, yes, sir. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I think you know on the assumption that he doesn't do anything um, foolish, uh, if he actually is disciplined about message, if he reads the scripts that they've written for him and stays on message, actually shows the judgment or the wisdom to listen to people who are trying to help him present the best version of himself. I think it can only you can't it's only you can only go up from down. I mean, I, I think it can only be a positive for him. Um, I don't think it, it it flips the numbers we were just talking about in terms of polls, but uh, anything that continues in erosion, um, uh, which we're seeing now of his public approval numbers and his and, and the climbing of his disapproval numbers, anything that does that has to be seen as uh, a positive for him. But bear in mind, you know, he's he set out an ambitious agenda, and he's walking into a lot of places that are set they're 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 set up for him to make a mistake, and if he's not careful, he's uh, visiting Israel now. Today, he's already you know, saying, I never mentioned the word Israel in the comments I made to the Russians. Well, why is he saying that? Because he wants to assure people there that he wasn't trying to make a mistake about Israel. Um, but the fact is, that same report, which the president didn't say anything about in his comments, didn't say that he named the, the country. It said he mentioned the city. Now, my guess is going to be that the city that he mentioned, that the information came from, he probably said Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to connected <laughs> that to Israel, right? Well, Tel Aviv, and, Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, that, that would be funny, actually. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's very carefully trying to nuance this stuff. But uh, this is a place where, you know, in, in, in the Israeli press, they – you know, they've obviously expressed a lot of concern. The people who work in Mossad, their intelligence are, you know, they, Benjamin Netanyahu may say things positively about this because he wants to have, you know, to continue a larger relationship with the United States. But the people who work for Netanyahu are mad about this because, uh, you know, when you share stuff like this, you, the last thing you think that, that somebody's going to do is turn around and give it to someone who is your adversary as well, Russia. And uh, so uh, that's, an example of that. He's going to visit the Vatican, and in the Vatican we have, a, and God bless him, a, a social activist, pope with a real conscience, mm -hmm. and a willingness to speak for people who are uh, uh, downtrodden and oftentimes underrepresented or unrepresented. And and uh, you'll have him on one side, and then you'll have Trump on the other, who, who I think makes comments about his, his religious faith and beliefs. Um, but also sometimes says things that alienate many of the same types of people that the Pope speaks on behalf of. And so waiting to see what happens there. Um, and then, of course, the, I think the crown jewel in this trip, Brian, is uh, the trip to Brussels and, and what was a NATO conference, which has now been downgraded to a NATO meeting because they're hoping to avoid, in their words, not mine, a Trump eruption happening <laughs> in the middle of a speech from a man who said uh, he, he's considering you know, withdrawing from NATO. And as somebody who works regularly with NATO, myself, on, on national security matters and on counterterrorism, I can tell you for the last two years, they've been very worried about that there. The day I gave – I was at a conference in, uh, uh, in Ankara, Turkey, on a military base, a big conference, a NATO conference. And I spoke the day that uh, a few hours after Trump as a candidate had said, uh, if I'm president, we're going to have a ban on Muslims coming to America. 
and uh, 70% of the people at that conference were from were Muslim and from Muslim countries that were either in NATO or NATO affiliates that you know had, had joined on to fight terrorism, and they were so angry by this. They watch all of this very very carefully. So you can bet. Um, that whether he's talking at NATO about how countries need to concern, contribute to 2% of their GDP for the expenses of NATO or else the U.S. will pull out, or if he's chastising them for not doing enough about terrorism, um, or if he says something foolish about Islam again, um, you know, here's another minefield that he's wandering into. And, and so every place he's visiting, what I'm trying to say is, is kind of set up for one of these things. And Back to your original question, how will he come out of this? It very much depends on how carefully he navigates all those minefields. And will he stay on script? Will he listen to the people who are trying to help him, who are advising him? Or will he do what he always does, which is trust his own instincts on things and really talk to family members more than he consults his advisors? You you know, you you mentioned trusting his own instincts. President Trump seems, in in my view, uh, to possess uh, the uncanny ability, uh, whether by Twitter or, or something that he may say uh, publicly, to, to abruptly change the narrative. So mm-hmm. like when those of us were, you know, say, prepared to talk about the Sally Yates testimony, the president fired FBI Director James Comey. Then he yeah. undercuts his staff by contradicting his staff on the reasons for the firing. And then on two occasions, one with NBC's Lester Holt and then one that was reported by the New York Times, it seemed that he was flirting with uh, an obstruction of justice possibility. Let me just say it that way. Yeah. What do you make of all? What do, you, what do you make of all that? Well, the, the the kindest way to the president to interpret that is to buy into, uh, I, I think, a thread that uh, his supporters and Fox News, to be honest with you, and others, Breitbart and the rest, um, uh, are trying to spin right now, which is that this is all part of some kind of, of deliberate grand strategy. Um, like kind of a, a, an intentional chaos theory where you try and promote um, uh, a kind of, in, in some ways, a, a non-comprehensive chaotic messaging, um, but you're doing it strategically to disrupt the people, the, the other agents that you're dealing with and throw them off off guard. And, uh, and in that moment, you can sort of, uh, they, they can't unify against you, and then you can sort of achieve the objectives you want. Um, I'll be blunt with you, Byron, and this is I'm not I don't mean to make personal remarks about Donald Trump. I don't know him personally, but I feel that I watched him a lot uh, for my job as a political analyst. I've read a lot of the things that he says. I studied a lot of video on him, so I feel like at some level I I am qualified at least to say this, although I'm not inside his head. But uh, I read him as a person who is intelligent and high functioning. Um, I don't believe that he's a deep thinker, and by deep thinker, I mean someone who really carefully processes and thinks through things before he makes a decision. Um, the fact that in so many of his speeches, instead, like the Coast Guard speech uh, that he gave to the graduation, the fact that he talked about himself so much, and he talked about, um, you know, describing how he had been attacked worse than anyone else in American history, the worst treatment of any politician. Lincoln might um, disagree with that. Pardon me? I said Abraham Lincoln might disagree. I, I, I think Lincoln and, and a lot of others might <laughs> yeah. disagree with that. Right. that. Um, but the fact that he does those, to me, suggests not a deliberate you know, chaos theory, I'm going to be the disruptor strategy, but more to someone who's a little narcissistic, 
Um, nothing wrong with that. Lots of politicians are narcissists. But um, his, I think, is a pretty extreme case. Uh, someone who broods about things, the whole image of him living alone in the White House right now without his family um, and watching on TiVo, you know, repeated uh, copies of, of testimony at the congressional hearings and the rest of it, you know, reminds me more of Richard Nixon than anybody else. And so I, he, he comes across, to answer your question, as, as not a deep thinker. His own staff complains that he doesn't read the briefings. He himself said in the transition, I'm not going to read the intelligence briefings any, any, every day because, hey, I'm kind of a smart guy, right? He thinks that he's smarter than them. And the fact is, I, I think that he comes across to our, our allies, our European allies, including the Secretary General of NATO, who said to an aide, he complained that Trump's, these are his words, not mine, Trump's attention span in his judgment was about 12 seconds attention span. So the image that, that comes across is of someone who's not a deep thinker, someone who's not good at listening to the people who are giving him advice and also doesn't do the reading on the homework. He instead likes to talk to his daughter or to his sons. Uh, uh, he trusts, I think, their instincts uh, as well, and he trusts his own judgment or intuition about things. And look, I'll give him credit. It got him to the White House so far, but we don't know that, that that will work. I mean, campaigning is one thing. Governing is something completely different. And these kinds of, of instincts uh, that he follows um, provide, I think, some of the chaos uh, that we see. And that's the reason, I think, that uh, there's such a strong disapproval. It's not one thing, per se, about Russia or, or whatever else. I think people are genuinely worried about an issue that Mrs. Clinton brought up early on that she was smart to identify, which is What's his temperament? I mean, do you really want to give the nuclear launch codes to someone who's thin-skinned, who doesn't think carefully about things, um, instead who seems a little impulsive and rash and uh, and maybe sometimes demonstrates a little paranoia about things? Those are – you really got to think carefully about that. And that's, I think, the buyer's remorse that some people are feeling in well, this country. When today. you mention paranoia, that, that that's definitely a Nixonian trait if I ever heard Absolutely. one. Um, Absolutely. With the speed – uh, Joe, in which this president is able to change the narrative, whether it's by design with the chaos theory that you mentioned or just his impulsive uh, 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 attitude, personality. personality. Yeah. Um, wh- what, in your view, should be the role of the press in covering him? Because everything he says is not a story. So how, how should the press, in your view, cover this president? Well, I, I, I'd say two things. First, let me say about the press. And, and uh, full disclosure to your listeners, I work sometimes with with uh, news media and, uh, and present company. So do I. So yeah, we're, we're yeah, both. So, so, so I mean, it'll, it'll sound like this. I'm biased, and I'm not always thrilled with all the stuff we do. In fact, I'll be critical of media in just a moment. But let me just say, one good thing that has happened in all of this this craziness in the last four months, I think, is a renaissance of news media and particularly a renaissance driven by print news media. I mean, the New York Times and the Washington Post have done most of the heavy lifting on this, and um, and God bless them, too. They've done, you know, you can question some of the uh, you know, the overemphasis on unnamed sources, but honestly, you know, most people who are going to, to talk to you don't want to lose their jobs, and so you think they're going to have to do it on background or they'll have to be, un, un, you know, un, unidentified in this. Um but you know there are a lot. There are so many things about the trouble around this this presidency that we would never have known about, but for the fact that the Times and the Post, in particular, went to the trouble to to uh, 
to dig and to find stuff and raise the questions. And even this point a week ago uh, about this question or a few days ago about the question of the president, uh, what he told the Russian ambassador and the foreign minister about Comey and calling him a nutcase and also, you know, his expression that now the pressure is off him. We would never have known those things, um, but for the fact that the Post and the Times uh, published that and and drove the other media to sort of confirm it. And you'll notice that in the, the White House uh, briefings, although they've tried to spin what it meant differently, uh, Sean Spicer has not denied the truthfulness of that. So those are great examples, I think, of news media doing their job, which is you know, to, to be, you know, the, the outsider that checks the truthfulness of the process. Now, having said all that, I did think for a long time that, and I'll, I'll point some of the blame at this a little bit, that uh, maybe CNN, which I think is beginning to rival Fox in terms of the coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not always thrilled uh, that part of the way they cover this is a small report, and then they have a panel of so-called experts who just, kibitz about it afterwards. That doesn't strike me as journalism. That strikes me as you have cable television for 24 hours and you have to fill it with content. And so you can't do that many news stories. And so you bring in these talking heads like me and they pontificate for an hour show. And I don't really know how that's newsworthy. It's just people talking about it. And I don't think that's a good, a great way to cover something. I also sometimes see, especially uh, well across the spectrum from Fox on one side to MSNBC on the other, that it's gotten very partisan. And, you know, I, I, I regret that as well because you would like to see these, the coverage, at least coming on the television side, uh, try and be a little bit more balanced. Uh, and because when it's not, that feeds Trump's narrative that, that this stuff is stacked against him. And uh, I think that the, that television kind of news media can, especially those who are in cable and have the 24 hour news cycle and are desperate for content. Um, could be a little bit more disciplined themselves. Not everything he does, as you said, is newsworthy. Not everything he said is evidence of a conflict or a crisis. You know, sometimes, you know, people make mistakes and, and you ought to give them a pass. And I, I think news people could be a little more either forgiving or just show some judgment because the more they cover him, frankly, the more he dominates the coverage. Then, then we're not talking about anything else. And, and there are lots of other things we should be talking about. If you're just joining us, we're uh, once again uh, speaking with political analyst Joe Tuman. Joe, talk to us. We, we talked about it a little bit earlier just in your previous answer, but talk specifically about the ramifications that can occur when a, when a president consistently undercuts the message that's already been put forth by his staff. What are the ramifications of that? Well, first of all, it, it creates a huge morale problem. Uh, for your staff, because they, you know, it's one thing to be given a job to do, and then maybe the president decides to go another way. But to consistently disregard what they put hard work into in a way that runs against your own interests. I mean, Trump didn't do himself any favors when he told Lester Holt those things about why he fired Comey. Um, uh, all it, it creates is the, uh, you know, the appearance that you're, you're, careless it feeds that other narrative i was telling you about this perception that he doesn't read uh or think very carefully before he speaks he's a little too emotional about this stuff and while that sometimes looks like he's actually saying in public what he says in private the bad part of this is that it presents a very poor impression of himself and if you're one of the staffers just killing yourself trying to help him you know and to be better 
um, you're, you're eventually going to be one of those people who'll be leaking something because he's not listening to the advice you're giving him. So maybe you think the only way you can persuade him um, is to let the news media have at him, and then he'll have to react or respond to that. And I don't know that all of the leaks that have come out of Washington are those, but I would bet you that a percentage of them are, including from people who are exasperated by the fact that he goes off message when they've gone to great lengths to keep him on message and like these people. So I don't think that's a positive thing at all. The, the, the president, Brian, the institution of the presidency is, is it's a very important brand. It's arguably the most powerful job in the world. And everything that this president does, from the way he moves his hair to how he walks to whether he buttons his coat or not, or the words that come out of his mouth, are scrutinized by hundreds of millions, if not billions of people on a daily basis. And so you just cannot be casual or cavalier or impromptu about that. You really need to listen to these people. And right now, a lot of those people are not only feeling like he doesn't pay attention to them. Um, I think many of them in this environment, with, with himself having lawyered up, uh, because of the, the FBI investigation, the congressional investigations. Now, a lot of those same staffers who are disgruntled about this and maybe feel low morale are also wondering, uh, given his statements last week, um, should they be hiring lawyers as well? And that's none of those are good things. That's when when that stuff is happening inside any kind of office, but especially at the White House, when they should when they need to be focused on other things, um, that is a, a very bad sign of a dysfunctional workplace. Assuming momentarily uh, that there are no um, long-term implications, or as Gertrude Stein said, there's no there there with some of this Comey stuff in the yeah. Russians. Um, do you see any long-term implications that could permanently hamstring this administration's ability to carry out its agenda? Well, sure. Um, uh, the The fact that we continue to have uh, these kinds of issues um, is, is for the time being, as I said to you earlier, beginning to slowly erode uh, Republican leadership confidence in what the president has said. Uh, I don't think Mitch McConnell has completely moved yet, but Paul Ryan is certainly inching away from the president. Um, there are any number of, of senators uh, in the GOP who have already on the record expressed concern and lots in the House as well. And if you don't have those people um, 110% defending you no matter what crazy thing you said, they may not feel beholden to support all of your legislation because really what they're watching besides the president is they're looking to see um, how badly his approval numbers tank. And as those go down, does it eventually get into the president's own, I said, 35% base? You know, is it suddenly look like what happens if those approval numbers drop to 25% overall, which would mean that would have to include some of the people, you know, who never voted for or who voted for Trump this time? Um, a lot of those, you know, the Republican leaders can do the math. They've got, you know, a pretty good machine on both in both parties, Democrat and Republican, to, to know when a, a congressional district is vulnerable for an incumbent or in a state. The same thing for a sitting senator. And, uh, you know, the people in Congress are political animals, and, and uh, they will act in ways that promote their ability to get reelected, assuming they want to stay in office. So anything that threatens his base and their approval of him is something that potentially threatens um, the Republican leadership in Congress because it can wash back on them if they continue to support Trump is the point. And so that's one effect uh, of this. Um, but the other is, uh, as I said, that I think is, is risky in terms of 
just you know the appearance of improprieties. Remember, if, we're t- if we are talking about um, impeachment as a possibility, and the fact that that word even enters the discussion nowadays, I think should be a source of concern for everybody. Um, you know, the decision to impeach or not, well, it might be based at some level on law, but it's the calculus for deciding to vote him out or in, or to impeach him rather, and then to have a, a separate vote in the Senate to remove him. Those are political decisions. And so uh, whether or not there is something there or not, the longer this drags on in the news narrative, the more it becomes a, a, a scent or a stench, if you like, in the President Trump's clothing, if you want to think of it that metaphorically, that he can't dry clean or wash out. You'll always be reminded of it when you see him. And that's the sort of thing that keeps those job approval ratings down in some ways. And that's the sort of thing, I think, that will make the Republican leadership nervous going forward. And, and as I said, less likely to help him with his legislation if that's the case. Well, the, on the flip side, uh, a Democratic member of the House of Representatives, uh, Al Green of Texas, has already called for the uh, the president uh, to be impeached. The new republic yeah. the new republic uh, ran a story this morning advocating a similar theme. Uh, the Democrats should be you know trumping that horn. Um, what, in your view, should be the Democrats' position right now? How should they be How should they be treading these waters? Well, I I, I think that that uh, you know it's an interesting question. Because I, I'm going to answer you this way before I talk about the leaders. I know so many Democrats out here in the Bay Area where I live, and I'm a Democrat, full disclosure to your listeners. Um, but I'm an open-minded person. I, I, lots of my best friends are Republicans, and we're good friends, and we sometimes disagree on policy. But they're all smart people, and I respect them, and they're well-intentioned people. And we have very civil discussions. We're not angry. So that kind of polarization I was talking about in the country, I try not to have in my relationships with people. Um, but I will tell you, I know so many people who supported Mrs. Clinton who not only felt disillusioned after the election, they felt angry and hurt and uh, raw from the experience. And these are people for whom um, uh, they've never gotten over this. They watch obsessively or read obsessively the news. Their favorite Google search terms are Trump Russia or something like that. Right, right. And uh, they they have, I think, uh, been thrilled by the last couple of weeks of every day there's a new Trump eruption coming up in the news, some other little mini scandal or micro scandal. And, uh, and I think that some of their enthusiasm about this, which is really kind of a way of collectively uh, doing some therapy for themselves after the depression they feel from the fall results, um, has also infected, to some extent, the enthusiasm of the Democratic leadership in Congress, who were, who were eager to see and to jump to the word impeachment before all of these investigations are done. I think there's certainly a good case to be made, uh, or at least a reasonable case to be made for obstruction of justice based on the statements of the president uh, recently, if that they proved to be true, or what he said to Mr. Comey. And the fact that he was fired and then the conversation that Trump had with Lester Holt, I think all of those go to the intent question, which you would have to prove uh, in an obstruction of justice case. Um, and the Democrats are kind of there. But, you know, in the end, uh, even though it, how Congress votes will be sort of based on the politics and then it's just a question of how many Republicans are willing to defect and join the Democrats. The fact is, if you looked at it today, the math probably doesn't work for the Democrats. So I think that they have to be careful about 
uh, not whether they support that and they oppose the president, um, but how shrill they sound sometimes because supporting something based on facts and evidence and you're very certain about your conclusions is one thing. Just reacting to news stories, which keep popping up uh, on a, you know, like every five minutes in the news cycle and saying, see, I told you so, is, is not the same thing, especially when so many of these stories are from unnamed sources and you really want to make sure that they're coming from uh, newspapers or from television networks or whatever that, that are fair and balanced and actually can document what they're saying um, before you jump on the, the bandwagon. I think the worst thing that the Democratic leadership could do in the Congress would be to falsely raise the hopes of all those people who are angry that I was talking about on the Democratic side, only to have them dashed later. Impeachment's a, a really big deal. It's not a small thing. It's a very big deal. Because it's not just about Trump, it's about the presidency, the office of the presidency, and, and it's about our legitimacy and our viability as a democratic model for everybody else. And we shouldn't rush into it as the quick solution to a problem um, unless we're 100% sure that that's the correct thing to do in any situation. And I would say that if Trump was a Democrat and Republicans were looking at him the same way, it's, we, we, we want to be very careful. Well, my, you... my, my mom always Sorry. said, you know, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> well, now I was I was just thinking, you know, since you mentioned your mother, I was I was thinking about. Um, I remember being uh, a, a young person. Uh, my dad was a blue collar Democrat, and I came in um, during the summer, and Nixon was um, giving the speech to resign. And yeah. and I, you know, my dad being a blue collar Democrat, you know, I knew he wasn't a fan of Nixon, so I was watching the uh, television screen, smiling, and my father said. Um, why are you smiling? And I kind of panicked because I knew that tone. And I said to him, this is good, right? He's resigning. And my father really looked at me very sternly and said, it's not good for the country. There you go. And so isn't yeah. that part of the issue here that we, we we get on our sides, our shirts and skins, our teams, and, 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 and we sort of overlook what's good for the country? And I don't know when impeachment is good for the country. I, yeah, it, I, it, it is. That, I think that's the fairest and safest way to put this. And, and you know, I, I, like you, remember being in high school when Nixon resigned as well. And uh, I remember the day, I think it was a, still a weekday, when the Congress voted, uh, when the House voted, you know, to endorse the articles of impeachment. Um, or they were they were about to put the vote together, and it looked like they were, they were introducing them anyway. I think he resigned before it became a reality. But uh, I lived in a small town in the San Joaquin Valley in those days that was 99% Republican. My parents were prominent Democrats in that town because there were only about 14 of them. (laughs) (laughs) But I was the only kid at school that that worked in George McGovern's campaign. I did in that year, and I had my little McGovern button on. I remember it. I would be ridiculed. Was it green? Was it green? It was a green one. Yeah, see? Yeah, see? (laughs) And, uh, um, but... uh, I, to, to, to comment on what you said that I think is what you've said is very accurate. I remember dancing with the only other Democrat, this guy I knew in class. We, we stood up and when, uh, you know, when we came back to school the next day when Nixon was out and we were doing the I told you so thing. Mm-hmm. But later that day I walked home. It was about a mile back to my house. And I suddenly had this moment of feeling very sad because I realized in that moment, even as a young person, that what I wanted to make me feel better about how, by how much Nixon had won that election up in McGovern was for Nixon to be impeached. But, and, and Nixon resigned in disgrace. But it, it, that didn't, 
that didn't make me any sadder that McGovern or less sad that McGovern had lost. In, in fact, it wasn't the the remedy I was looking for. And I think people sometimes who go to death penalty, you know, sentencing or, or to the, where you actually end up doing the execution, if you've lost a loved one, you're waiting for your your pound of flesh, you know, the, the person who killed your your father to be put to death. But some of, many of them will say afterwards that. When that person dies, you feel even worse sometimes because you realize that hasn't uh, filled the hole in your heart. And I think a lot of disenfranchised Democratic voters in the last election are hoping that Trump's trouble will be the thing that eases their pain. And I fear – that's why I'm saying I think the party leadership needs to be careful about this, that impeachment by itself won't do that. I mean the thing that fixes all that is having a Democratic Party just like a Republican Party that doesn't ignore – as many voters as both parties did, those same people that found Trump this time around. That's really where they should be focusing for the future. Well, in the few minutes we have left with you, let me just throw out a, a, a theory and have you, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I know that um, we, the, the, there's the potential uh, uh, of obstruction of justice and, and, yeah. um, the, and, and the, and the cover up, the potential cover up and things of that nature. But could it also, could, uh, some of this also be the work of a, of a political novice in that the president is operating the White House the way he operated his closely held corporation. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what else? What other frame of reference does he have? Right? This is a person who the closest he's come to politics is giving money to politicians. Um, but other than that, uh, that, that is exactly what he's doing. And, and I, you know what? I will say, uh, by the way, Byron, I was considering this the other day. The irony in all of this right now is that his activities to this point, or the stories about him, have eroded a lot of the faith that other countries and other leaders have in the United States, and the brand, if you like, of the United States as a model of a democracy. And I find that terribly ironic, considering the, the thing that Mr. Trump really did best in business was build his own brand. So a, a person who is an expert at brand management is unfortunately because of his inexperience in politics really hurting the brand of the United States, what what we mean to other countries, and how much they're going to trust us or uh, follow our example going forward. Well, it's, it's, it's a lot easier, Joe, to build your own brand, you know, the brand of Byron Williams and Joe Toom, and then have to build the, the uh, maintain the brand of some in excess of three hundred million people. That's a that's a heavier lift, right? It is. It's a big lift. <laughs> and, the, and the truth is, it's probably not a brand. It's brands with an S at the end. Yeah. Right? Well, yes, 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 yes. Joe yeah. Tuman, friend, political analyst. Thank you, sir, for once Always again being on the political reality. That was Joe Tuman. Stay tuned as I speak with fourteen-year-old Caleb Lumpkin about his volunteer efforts in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome back. It's very easy these days to become cynical about the culture. 
But every now and then, one becomes privy to a story like that of Caleb Lumpkin that very powerfully reminds us of what is really important. Each week, 14-year-old Lumpkin serves as a volunteer facilitator that teaches and encourages individuals with intellectual disabilities to read. Recently, Lumpkin was honored in Washington, D.C., along with a number of young people across the country with the Prudential Spirit of Community Awards. I am honored that he would join us on The Public Morality. Caleb Lumpkin, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. It is indeed our pleasure. You know, we wanted to have you on. I was um, reading your profile, um, and it it said um, uh, that you are a volunteer facilitator of a book club that teaches and encourages people with intellectual disabilities to read. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, I'm the youngest facilitator at 14 years old who has ever worked at the Next Chapter Book Club. Next Chapter Book Club is a gigantic organization where you can um, teach adults with mental disabilities, such as Down syndrome or other things like that, to read, and it's really nice. Now, how did you become a facilitator? I'm an actor. I love acting. It's my passion. And when I was doing a show with Fear Alliance in Winston-Salem, I met a boy named Jeremy who was in the play. Jeremy has Down syndrome, and his mom is the leader of our sector's book club. There's five in the sector. And I got to be friends with Jeremy, and Jeremy's mom asked me if I would like to be a part of it because Jeremy really liked me, and Jeremy actually recommended me to do it. So you were recommended by Jeremy? Um, yes, sir. To, to, to be... Which essentially you became the youngest facilitator in in in, in this area. Is that correct? In in the whole thing. In the whole okay. In the whole thing. And I was twelve when I became the youngest facilitator. Uh, so you so you started at twelve. Yes, sir. Uh, so so you you are you are becoming a veteran already. Um, <laughs> take us through um, one of your facilitators. Your facilitating sessions. Just what does that what does that look like for us? Just walk us through that, if you would. Okay, so the book club members arrive at three o'clock on Sunday. There's like there's usually seven or eight of them. Sometimes a few don't come. Before that, we get to the YMCA, which is where the book club takes place, mm-hmm. and we set up some tables and we remove all the distractions from the room. And then the book members come in and we have a little conversation, ask them about the day, wait for everyone to arrive. And Caleb, and Caleb, Caleb, if I can just jump in for just one minute. Now, this is every this is every Sunday. Yes, sir. Um, except for a couple weeks in December because of Christmas and New Year's, and we take like three or four weeks during summer. Okay, okay. So the, I'm sorry to cut you off. So you 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 get the room you get you're getting the room set up. Go 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 right ahead. Get the room set up, and then we um, ask them about their week if they're having a good day. They met any new friends, and then. We start reading. We usually read three to four chapters a day, every Sunday. Um, we usually read early beginners and the Magic Schoolhouse books are really good, and the Treehouse ones too. Mm-hmm. Now, now, are are you reading to them? How 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 does this work? So, a few of the members are excellent excellent readers. Some of them can read without help. Others they need help, and others don't read at all. So the ones that don't read all, we read to them as a group, and we ask them to try to sound out a few words every time. The ones that are um, okay but still need help, 
We make sure that they're paying attention. We help them follow along. Excellent readers. They can usually read by themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so so uh, so you're there then to like uh, facilitate. So some of the excellent readers would, would do they often have questions for you, or do they have? Do you help them at all? Is is, is this they're on their own, and you're, you're just helping the ones? How does this work? You're just helping the ones who can't read. Well, um, we sit at a square table and we read to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really cool because sometimes the excellent readers they try to help out their friends, which is really cool. Their friends, which are the members. And the excellent readers, sometimes they stumble on a word or they don't know the word, and then we try to help them know okay. the word. Mm-hmm. And they also ask a lot of questions, which is really fun, because I ask a lot of questions. Well, then well, then we'll have to have you. Um, your next job will be, uh, when I take vacation, you'll come here and replace me on the public morality. That'll be your next job. So <laughs> I've already signed you up for another job, see? We'll keep you busy. Um, awesome. Uh, you know, you're, you obviously... Uh, I can hear in your voice that you, you, I mean, you're, you're, you're providing a, 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 a great service and you're giving of your time. And so you're doing something tangible, but, 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 um, what does this do for you? It does everything for me. It's my therapy. Since I've joined the book club, I think I've become a lot more responsible and understanding and patient. The book club is really expanded my worldview and the way I think about things and it's amazing what they've done for me and if you if you wouldn't mind would you also um, tell me a little bit about Jeremy if you would Jeremy has Down syndrome and he just got engaged to his girlfriend who also has Down syndrome and um, Jeremy is really awesome Jeremy is an actor he plays on the ensemble and sometimes he has some of his own parts I'm actually looking at a picture of Jeremy right now, a cast photo from the show that I met him in, and he's just a little goofball. <laughs> now, now, you've how long have you known Jeremy? Four years or three years. So you knew him a couple years b- before he suggested that you become a facilitator. Is that correct? Um, actually, he suggested I become a fil- fil- facilitator while we were doing the play. So. I've known him for almost as long as I've been in the book club. Okay, okay. It's right. a funny story, actually. Yeah. I My school, before we start, they all take us to Camp Haynes, which is a stay-over-the-night camp, and rehearsals for the show, I still had to attend, even though I was at the camp, and they went really late. They went to like, 12 o'clock p.m., and one time I wore my pajamas because I had to go right back to camp, and they had the Grinch on him, and Jeremy sometimes calls me the Grinch. <laughs> uh, he still calls you the Grinch sometimes <laughs> but but the, as I recall by the end of the Grinch the Grinch had, really did have a good heart so you really are you're that Grinch yes sir you, you, you're not the you're not the you're not the guy who's ripped you know who's you know uh, absolutely not taking yes, Cindy Lou Who <laughs> see, I remember that Cindy Lou Who you're not taking Cindy Lou Who's stuff right no sir okay alright now because of this work, um, you were recently uh, acknowledged in Washington, D.C. Will you tell us a little bit about that, if you would? It was awesome. I got to meet a lot of other young individuals who are changing the world. And I also got to meet my senators and Michael Phelps. And you met Michael Phelps? It was awesome. Okay, okay. You know, we could, we could, we, I, I want to talk about the other stuff you did, but I want to talk about Michael Phelps first. All right, all right. Now, now you're name dropping. Now you're name dropping on me. So you, so you met Michael Phelps. What was that like? 
it was so awesome. He's really tall. He's taller than I thought he would be. Yeah, now he is about six six. I mean, I understand that he he. I was told he has like the perfect body for swimming. He has like big hands, big feet. He's long. He, he just he has all the tools. So yes, you, sir. So you met Michael Phelps, and then you and you also met uh, Senator Burr and Senator Tillis. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And how, what was that like? It was okay. Okay. So so I, I'm assuming by that response that. It was cooler to meet uh, Michael Phelps than the two centers. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. I think I'd be a little more excited to meet Michael Phelps than I, I would be to, to meet politicians. But I, I totally understand <laughs> where you're coming from there. Now, I'm, I'm just curious, were there any, um, any of the people that you met? Because you had people coming from all over the country, right? Yes, sir. Okay. And so anybody sort of stand out in your mind, some of the volunteer work that they're doing? Well, um, I can talk about that. There's this one uh, boy, and he was from New Mexico, mm-hmm. and he is the CEO of, and he's like 17, I think. He's the CEO of a multi-million dollar um, organization that provides um, disaster relief to hurricanes and everything like, and fires. Oh my! And it's a nonprofit. Oh my! Yeah, it's crazy. I was like, "How am I here when it's <laughs> like this?" Yeah, well, but I, I think just just listening to you, I think we know why you're there. You 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 got there for doing some 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 amazing work. Um, you're also a thespian, an actor. Yes, sir. And you and you said earlier that um, that that that's your passion. So. Uh, see, one of the great when you're when you're in, when you're in show business, you you gotta plug your stuff, man. You gotta plug it. So we're gonna I'm, I'm gonna give you a couple seconds. Go ahead, plug. Uh, you have you have a performance coming up. I think I will be attending one of those shows. But you have a performance coming up. Will you tell us about it? Okay, sir. Um, I've been taking classes with acting out. It's a community outreach program in the drama school of the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. We're doing the play, the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, on June 2nd through the 4th at the university, and it's the first time they've ever done an all-kids show. Um, To celebrate it, we'll have the mayor of Winston-Salem, meteorologist Lainey Pope, uh, David Ford, and the president of UNCSA as a celebrity guest. And I was also going to invite you and ask you if you'd like to be a celebrity guest. Oh, wow. See, now I... I you, 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 you set me up. You, you, you're the first person to ever come on the public morality and pitch me to do something. But uh, I, I guess since you got me on the air, I, I guess I guess I'm on the hook. Yes, sign me up. I'm, I'm, I'm in. Okay, there's some things you have to do though. The celebrity guest stars will be coming on stage, and we'll be acting as some of the volunteer spellers. The All right. So study your vocabulary. <laughs> now you really set me up. It's, it would really look bad for a writer not be to be able to spell, right? That would that would that would really be bad. So you you set me up. I can't believe you've actually come on the show and you set me up. You've taken it over. You know, anytime you want this permanently, you can have it. You, you're already my heir apparent. <laughs> um, my character Leaf Coney Bear has a great backstory. Um, he's never been that confident in himself because his siblings, his like 10 or 11 siblings, they keep telling him that he's not smart. But as the show goes on, he learns that he's smart and can do what he wants. Um, 
and it's really cool. You should. I'm excited that you decided to be a celebrity guest. Yeah, well, I'm 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 excited um, to not only be a celebrity guest. I'm really excited to to, to know you because you you know um, as you get. Hopefully this won't happen to you, but many of us, as we get older, we become more cynical, and we tend to think that um, the world is less caring. And um, not, I mean, you here in Winston Salem make us all proud, but you also show that there's a number of young people all over the country that that, that really do care about the world. And so, one of the fears that those of us who are getting older always uh, believe that. Um, who will take over, but it sounds like the work you're doing and other young people, um, the, the, the world um, will be in good hands. Uh, Thank you so much. Caleb Lump- um, Lumpkin, I, I'm honored to not only be a celebrity judge, I'm also honored um, to have you on the public morality. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing, son. I'm honored to be here. Would it be okay if I said hello to some of the book club members? I'm sure they'd love to hear their name on the you, radio. After what you after after the way you got me uh, as a celebrity guest, go <laughs> right go right ahead. Get, do your shout outs. Go right ahead. Awesome. I would like to say hi to George, Eric, Marina, Sarah, and all of the other book club members and facilitators. You guys are the best. That that was great, Caleb Lunkin. Thank you for being thank on the public so morality day. You have a great day, son. You too. Bye. Goodbye. That was Caleb Lumpkin. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Now for my closing remarks. The prophet Isaiah talks about a day when the wolf and lamb will live together in harmony along with the leopard and with a goat and the lion with the calf. What's more, it proclaims that a child shall lead them. I'm not certain if the carnivores mentioned in the Isaiah passage have received the memo that they should be kinder and gentler to their more docile neighbors. But my interview with 14-year-old Caleb Lunkin causes me to wonder if we've gotten the memo. The memo that reads, we must see the humanity in all of our neighbors, not just the ones who think, act, and vote as we do. The memo that also suggests we should spend more time being self-reflective and less so emotionally reflexive. That we should not be so certain of our own truth and display a little more curiosity about the truth that differs from ours. Those are certainly the lessons that 14-year-old Caleb Lumpkin displays, and maybe that's also why the Isaiah passage concludes that a child shall lead them. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is located on iTunes. Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 